evening and welcome to episode 84 of the Cood Street Podcast. This morning, we're very, very uh, fortunate to have Elizabeth Hand joining us for the first time since episode 10. As I mm. recall, that was, you know, she, Gary, and uh, Peter Straub called in at the time from ReaderCon. You know, a year and a half has passed, so it'll be interesting to see exactly what, what, what we, you know, we can touch, you know, touch on in terms of new developments. But first, good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. And and it's also and Liz. Yes, and good evening to you too, <laughs> and good morning, Jonathan. <laughs> good morning. Yep. It's a hot, sunny morning in Perth, Western Australia. Sticky and unpleasant as it tends to get at this time of year now. Oh my goodness! I can tell you. Let me see if I can look out at the thermometer. I'm visiting my parents in Vermont, and it is supposed to get below zero tonight. Oh, wow. I can't see what it is now, but it, it, that's, you know, below, below zero Fahrenheit. It is very, very, very cold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, um. And we had, we had six, I, I just had six inches of snow here a couple of days ago. So we're oh, all really? In, so, wow. Yeah. Now, um, yeah. up, up until then, we had less than two inches all winter, though, so I'm, I'm not complaining. No, we've had no snow, snow at all until this week. We just we had snow yesterday, and that was the first time, pretty much. So it's been an odd winter. Thank God there's no such thing as climate change. Of course not. <laughs> well, the thing that links up our previous conversation and possibly this one is when we spoke last, which is about 18 months ago, uh, you had just had <clears throat> the maiden flight of, flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon come out in stories. And that's right. Yes, that's yeah. And we we chatted. God, was it that long ago? It really was. Yeah. <laughs> we, ch we chatted about that and about you know writing novellas, that kind of thing at the time. And the, the the I guess the spontaneous reason for doing this, because dear listeners out there, we hadn't actually planned any time ahead to do this, was that uh, a listener to the podcast, James Bradley, was saying that he had just read Macaulay's Bellerophon and thought it was wonderful. And where should he go next? And that sort of sparked the idea that, well, maybe what we should do, rather than sort of twittering away at someone, was get in touch and see what was happening with, with you and what you'd been writing and how work was. <laughs> well, work so, is good. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, I'm always in sort of a quandary when somebody likes one thing, like the Bellerophon story, because that is so radically different from Available Dark, which is the next thing that's coming out, mm -hmm. which is very, very dark and very kind of stark and bleak and set mostly in, in Reykjavik in Iceland. Uh, whereas the Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon, I think, is, you know, it's a very sort of lyrical story and it's set in a warm place on one of the sea islands off the coast of South Carolina. Um, I think I, I tend to go back and forth between the sort of lyrical, warm, psychically warm, if not you know, setting warm books, and then the very cold ones. But I do have more of a lyrical, warm one coming out in April, and that will be Radiant Days, which is a YA novel uh, that is in part about the French poet Arthur Rimbaud and also about a. 19-year-old, um, a young woman who's living on the streets, a graffiti artist living on the streets of Washington, D.C. in 1978. She's sort of inspired by Basquiat, and she has this kind of numinous encounter with um, Rimbaud, and that's sort of a much more lyrical story. So for somebody who liked Bellerophon, that might be more to their taste. Um, although, you know, I always like to think that people can kind of jump from one thing to another. Available Dark is a sequel to Generation Loss, so it obviously shares the same protagonist and um, kind of the same mood. It's very dark, the same milieu. It, it's set, as I said, in, um, in Reykjavik and part of it in Helsinki as opposed to Maine, which is where Generation Loss was set. <clears throat> We should we should uh -huh. probably clarify that that, that radiant <clears throat> for for people listening to this podcast at least that radiant days is a fantasy. Uh, yes, that's correct. Available. It is a fantasy novel. Yes. And available, and available dark, dark I, is not. 
Well, well this, I, this is, that's one of those questions that kind of comes up because with when we're looking at the the two new novels coming, and I think this is probably the first time ever that's happened for, uh, where you've had two books come out so close together. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. No, I've I've never had that happen before. I I don't know many people who've had that happen before. I get. I mean, maybe it does happen. But it certainly never happened to me. There are, pla- there are places where it tends to happen, like as a as a ta- uh, a commercial tactic, though it's a little bit terrifying. You know, where someone buys a trilogy and then puts out the three volumes of it a month you know, a month apart, like in January, February, and March. Right. Which seems to require yeah. an incredible amount of writing, I think. Something like that no, happened this- to Naomi Novik, I think. Yeah. It, it happened to who? Naomi Novik, I think the first three. Oh of those right, novels. right, yeah, yeah, with her books. Yeah, no, this was just a fluke. These are two books from two different publishers, and um, it's just one of those odd things in terms of scheduling that they both are coming out at about the same time. So um, it'll be interesting to see if I get, you know, um, any readers from one who who go over to the other. I don't know. You know I, 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 well, I, I, yeah, I, I'm a fan of yours, as you know, and... Um, I mean, I, when, when somebody asked me when they've read one thing by a writer and says, what, what else should I read by that writer? My, if it's a good writer, my first reaction is always something like, well, which version of the writer did you start with? Uh, but uh, I can probably knit all these things together because when I was uh, thinking about, actually, I was thinking about uh, your work, Liz. I was thinking about Mortal Love while I was reading uh, the new um, Caitlin Kernan novel. Uh, and there's a painting very much at oh. the center of... The, the, uh, yeah, the that's drowned, a, the drowned girl. Yeah, that's a great dr- book. Yeah. It's terrific. Um, but what she does with a painting in the center of that, it seems to me, is similar to what you did with a painting in the center of Mortal Love. And then I started thinking, well, okay, Mortal Love is is kind of a lyrical visionary romance of a, of, of a sort, and very much different from um, from Generation Loss. But they're both they're, they both deal with with struggling artists. I mean, um, and that's one thing that seems to knit a lot of your fiction together for the last several years at least uh, you've got photography uh, with, with, with casts, you've got uh, painters in, in Mortal Love you've got theater in Illyria, you've got uh, Rambo in, um, in um, Radiant Days so you do sin- team- seem to come back to the arts quite a bit yeah I do it's, it's one of those things I guess because it, it, to me it seems like there's a mystery at the heart of artistic creation you know the whole creative act to me seems like a very mysterious thing and I'm continually drawn to artists to try to figure out how exactly it works you know what what makes it tick what makes them tick uh, Wilding Hall which is the novel I'm work I'm writing now which is sort of a um, contemporary gothic it's a YA no- novel it's another novel I'm doing for Sharon November who is my editor at Viking for Radiant Days, and who also published the American edition of Illyria, and and this book deals with actors again. It's um, a different, a very different milieu than Illyria. It's sort of a, um, it's not exactly Glee. <laughs> it takes mm-hmm. place in England, but it's sort of a um, uh, an intensive program for young actors who are you know 18, 19 years old, sort of between uh-huh. high school and college, and finding their way and I just um, I do seem to be drawn back over and over again to actor you know to um, artists of one type or another the, the next cast Neary book which is set in London deals with um, you know a graffiti artist and with musicians again I, I uh, it just seems to have a you know a, a, a real hold on me I, I guess if I could ever figure out what makes writer's tick, I would go on to, you know, football players or something else. <laughs> something else <laughs> that I know nothing about. <laughs> well, were you ever on stage? You were, you were in a theater as, in college, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I, um, I did act some, you know, acting in high school, uh, sort of community theater and high school plays and things. And then I went to university and was in a, a BFA program for three years studying playwriting but the way that the program was set up was you basically had to do a little you know a little bit or a lot of everything and so I did quite a bit of acting and I was mm. not good at it at all I you know I've turned out to be a, I'm a good reader now of my own work so I can read aloud from it and 
I think now if I had gone to become like one of those actors who reads books for, you know, Audible or something like that, I could have done that. But because I, I do like to read aloud and I'm good at mm-hmm. that, but I'm not good on the stage. But I had enough experience at it to know how demanding it is. And I have a very good friend who is a, a woman, Ann Whitman, who I've known since high school, who's a professional actor in London. And I've you know, seen her and know what has gone on with her life to be a working actor now after, you know, literally decades of just kind of, you know, pounding away at it. Um, so, and, and, you know, and I know artists and other disciplines as well. And it just, the ratio of talent to hard work to luck that's involved with having any kind of a career in the arts is, um, uh, I don't know, something nobody's ever quite figured out how to make it work. It's discouraging anyway. <laughs> yeah. Why, well, but one of the things, this, this raises another issue which we were going to talk about on a future podcast, which is audiobooks. Um, and I was thinking, uh, and I think it may have been when you were here in Chicago once, uh, you were reading a bit from Generation Loss, I think. And in Cass's voice and Cass's accent, which completely changed the way I read the book when I went back and looked at it again. Um, yeah, that's. I- yeah, I'd love to do that. I, I just I did that this past week um, when I was I did a reading here in Maine, and I'm going next week to Virginia, and I'm going to be doing a reading there, and I'm going to be doing another one in D.C. in a month. I'm hoping to do quite a few because I I feel like when I am able to do that and and do that uh, do a reading from that book in character as Cass Neary, it. It makes a big difference in how people kind of get hooked into it. You know, I think it's yeah. um, hearing her voice is, and, and I don't even, I mean, I know it's me doing it, but it's just, you know, that, that particular character's voice I think is pretty powerful. It's much more powerful than, you know, my voice now talking to you. And I have found that when I've been able to do it, you know, in any kind of in a bookstore or any place else, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, people get hooked on it and they want to hear more. And it was, I actually had a, an odd experience because Audible has just done Generation Loss as, as a, an audiobook, and they're also going to be doing uh, Available Dark. And the actor, the actress, who was wonderful, Carol Monda, who does the reading of Generation Loss, but it's completely different <laughs> from what I do, you know. Oh, really? and, and she said, yeah, she and I corresponded by email, and she said that they, you know, she... She listened to my podcast from Generation Loss, and she kind of she had some questions for me about the character and stuff. But she said that they are they can't do it like that. They cannot do it in dialect or using an accent. They have to sort of have that kind of um, you know mid Atlantic voice, actor voice. Okay. So I actually found it kind of. I mean, it's a, it, she does a terrific job with the reading, but it was very disconcerting for me to listen to that and to hear somebody else reading that material because I've come to identify myself so strongly with it since the book was first published, which is now almost right. five years ago. <laughs> it's very well, strange. It's, it's very strange, and I've, I've not listened to very many audiobooks at all. And, uh, uh, and, and, and sometimes I've had the experience of thinking, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know how to read that book until I heard this. Uh, which was, I forget, uh, Lenny Henry, I think, did the audiobook yeah. with Neil Simmons and Nancy Boys, which just made a lot more sense out of the novel. But, uh, hmm. but I've heard other ones that made me think, I think this person is misinterpreting the novel, and I think I'm right. Let me ask, <laughs> let me ask a perhaps, I don't know, irrelevant question, but having somebody else read the novel and having them read it deliberately in a more mid-Atlantic kind of a voice... Is it a bit like f- finding that someone has misportrayed your character on the cover of the book and suddenly your black character becomes white kind of a thing? That they've made the book just a bit more vanilla? No, I, I don't think it was like that with this. She, um, I, I can see what you're saying. I, I don't think in this particular instance um, it did that. I think, like, I have not listened to the, the entire reading the, the entire audiobook is nine and a half hours long, and I have not listened to all of it. Um, you know, 
a friend of mine, at least one person I know who, who bought it, and he did listen to it on a long trip that he had to take, and he loved it. He thought it was great. And I think that it might be that listening to that Cass Neary voice for nine and a half hours would get to be very grating. I mean, sure. seriously, I think it might be that if you listen to that voice, that character for that long, that might be like sitting next to that person on a bus for nine <laughs> and a half hours. And, and I could see that by the end of it, you, you know, you might just want to like, you know, push them off the bus. <laughs> but whereas listening to a professional actor do it, it's much more um, measured. The timing is more precise. Uh, it, it is very, very different. You know, I think it's a very different um, experience. You know, I, I think what I have done with it is m probably more theatrical. You know, you hear about Dickens reading from his work and he's acting out all of the parts and, and everything, and that's probably m more of what I like to do because I'm a ham. But <laughs> for somebody who is, you know, listening to the book, in a more passive manner, you know, not sitting in an audience live um, watching and listening to somebody. I think it might, might be a lot more, um, might, might be a much better experience to listen to a professional actor. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I listen to, with my kids, we, li we listen to Stephen Fry read the first couple of um, Harry Potter books on tape. And and they were wonderful. You know, he did the first ones in the UK, and somebody else did the American editions, and they were fantastic. And you know, he didn't do all the voices. He just did you know this wonderful job of reading the book. So it's um, I think it might be kind of an apples and oranges thing. And yeah. in, in this case, they're you know, the audiobooks are really good apples. <laughs> does yeah. does reading your work aloud change the way you write? Do you think? I think it does, and I actually just, when I, I was teaching at Stone Coast this week, I just literally got back yesterday from doing my residency, and I did a workshop, a presentation with another um, writer there, Elizabeth Searle, who does uh, a lot of theatrical work. Mm -hmm. She's done a rock opera uh, based on the Tanya, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding oh, um, scandal. <laughs> She did an opera called, you know, Tanya and Nancy. She's done a lot of theater work. And we did a workshop for writers on how to use techniques from acting when you're writing to kind of get into a character's head and develop a character. And um, I kind of talked a little bit about, you know, doing, kind of taking things from method acting, which is the how sort of the, not the training that I had, but, you know, when I studied it in, at school, that was sort of what the vogue was then, and I, I think is still now. And I think quite, I, I think a lot of what I absorbed as a failed actor, you know, 30 years ago, I was able to make use of in writing. So I think that it, it kind of, you know, building a character from the inside out, and I do now read, you know, things aloud, to myself when I've written something, uh, and very often when you're reading it aloud, you're able to see, you know see where the rhythm isn't working, and see well oh that's way too long you know like that's that's actually really boring <laughs> to read that part aloud you know that's the part where you know your ears glaze over your eyes would glaze over on the page and when you're listening to somebody do that you're kind of starting to to tune it out so. I think it does help. Yeah. You know, having said that, I don't sit there and like read everything I write out loud. But I do. I, I do think about it more than I used to. I bet you can hear it while you're writing it. Though. I'm sorry. I bet you can hear it in your mind while you're writing. Yes. Yeah. I, I guess. Sorry, you go ahead, Gary. Just a, well, let me, let me put two parentheses within parentheses here. One, uh, in case anyone listening doesn't know what Stone Coast refers to. Uh, it's one of the few creative writing programs in the United States where writers interested in fantasy or science fiction and horror can get a fair deal. You know, James Patrick Kelly works there. I think I think David Anthony Durham still teaches there occasionally. It's got a very uh, sympathetic faculty, which is a, an issue that some people in creative writing programs come up against. Um, and the yeah, other and point it's also right, Liz. No, I was also going to say, and Scott Wolven is there as well, who and Mike Kimball, who um, do 
suspense and crime fiction. Okay, and so uh, Nancy not... Holder, who does um, fantasy and science fiction, but also romance fiction. So they, they kind of cover the waterfront when it comes to popular fiction. Which is something that a lot of creative writing programs have problems with. But that's, that's, a, that's a diatribe which is not appropriate here, but it's <laughs> at some point. Um, <laughs> the other thing about authors reading the work, uh, just a, a footnote to that. Uh, years ago, somewhere still in my storage locker, I have this. Uh, there was a Cademan recording. I used to love Cademan long-playing records because you could listen to Yeats. And there was one of, um, I had one of Ulysses, and I forget who the actor was. It was an Irish actor doing a very good job of reading Ulysses. But on the same recording, there was a recording of Joyce reading Anna Olivia Pluribel from Finnegan's Wake. Um, hmm. and, and it was, and I didn't, uh, and, uh, first of all, I've come closer to understanding that part of Finnegan's Wake than any other part. Thanks to that recording, because it was utterly beautiful to listen to. It was music. Yeah, I, I've heard that, and it, it does, it makes sense when you hear that. When you read it on exactly. the page, it doesn't make sense, but when you hear Joyce read that, it does. Yeah, I know exactly, exactly. what you're talking about. Good. It's the only part of Finnegan's Wake I, I think I might understand. <laughs> that page, or however many pages that is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the reason it occurred to me to ask about reading aloud, though, was because you were saying earlier that Available Dark and uh, Radiant Days aren't long novels. And I was, I was just it made me think that, in many ways, your novels have got shorter over time. Or they seem to have. I mean, books like Winterlong and Waking the Moon and Glimmering are seem much bigger novels. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think part of it is that I, it took me a really long time to figure it out. But I figured out that the things that I wrote that were shorter, like novellas, always did very well. <laughs> that I could I could write them better, and then when it came to terms of, um, you know, them getting readers or getting, um, you know, any kind of um, notice out in the literary world, the things that were novella length, I, I you know, I had an act for it. And I finally thought, well, wow, maybe I should start to write books that are that length, <laughs> right? You know, long novellas or short novels. So Radiant Days, Radiant Days is not that short. I can't remember how long it is, but um, Available Dark is pretty short, but it, but it works really well. I think it works, I think, as I, I said before when we talked about, you know, novellas a year and a half ago, I think it's really the ideal length for a certain kind of story that is very dependent on mood and atmosphere and I think also on suspense because you can build tension and every time somebody puts a book down, you know, every time you close a book and you go to bed or you walk away or something, you lose that, you know, you lose all that tension as a reader that has been built up for you by the writer. And if you write something that's short, that's a novella length or a short novel or a short story, you're able to maintain that, that tension and that level of suspense. So I am more consciously trying to write things that are shorter. Um, and, you know, I think also my earlier books tended to get overly complicated because I thought that was what plotting, plotting meant. You know, that a plot was something that was complicated. And my friend Bob Morales, several years ago, pointed out to me, he said, no, this is wrong. He was reading something of mine. He said, this is what you do. It's a mistake that you, you know, every time that you think that the plot isn't working, you just make it more complicated. When What you really <laughs> should do is make it much more simple. And I had never thought of that before. When he said that, I realized, oh, you know, he was right. He was right about it in general, and he was right about it in particular with, you know, my books, that they got overly complicated and um, that it was not a good thing. Whereas, you know, with a novella, you can't afford to be complicated. You know, if you're telling a story in 100 pages or less, 70 pages or less, that, you know, you cannot waste uh, time or space or effort on, um, you know, all of these contortions of plot. So... So I'm trying to do that. It, it doesn't always work. I, you know, I go over my limit all the time. Well, it, it may but not yes. be just because I, uh, when I'm thinking, I, I think back to, at least back to the first couple of science fiction novels, there was, uh, there, there was a great deal of lyricism, which sort of echoed Gene Wolfe lyricism at the time. Winter 
along. And in a shorter form, the lyricism has to be more focused, I guess, and more, well, more the length of a lyric, if you know what I mean. Um, yes. In, in other words, you can't, well, uh, I'm thinking of Illyria, which I think is a very lyrical novel, novel whatever we want to call it. Uh, and, and the lyricism is precious in that because there's a limited amount of it. And, and I think the reader values the, that sort of thing when it's given in measured doses. Yeah, and it's just, well, Illyria, I mean, from my perspective, Illyria was just kind of, you know, that was a gift from God. I, I wrote that in three weeks, and it just, you know, it, it really was a story that I had spent decades trying to tell. And that was just the moment when it all came together, and and it worked, you know. And it would, <clears throat> and I realized at the time that it was working, and and it did. It just, you know, it was sort of like the uh, I don't know, the trapeze artist who spends their entire life training for the triple somersault, and they get up and they do it just once, and they note that they've done it perfectly. And I I kind of <laughs> felt like that with that book, that that or that story that I been practicing trying to write that story for such a long time and at that particular moment it did all come together and I you know it's like Daffy Duck says it's it's a great trick but I can only do it once <laughs> so I, I I did do that that once um, I don't know that I would ever be able to pull that off again I, I wish I could and in, in something that short of form well, I don't um, know, Chip Crockett's Christmas Carol was I had had the same effect on me in many ways mm. Yeah, that was that was short. That was short too. And I had um, I actually had a a novella that I did last year called Near Zenner. That was a, a you know a horror story, a supernatural story, and and um, you know and that was different in that it was it was lyrical, but the you know whatever lyricism it had was uh, expended towards you know writing a horror story, making something creepy. I was. I was trying to write a Robert Aikman story, so that was what you know. That was what I. That's what I squandered my lyricism on. <laughs> well, I think there's a fine line between horror and lyricism, but we could talk about that on a panel somewhere. Do you find yourself surprised that you're writing YA novels now? Uh no, not really, because I feel you know. I think that I feel like YA has sort of become, as a field, it's sort of like the witness protection program for <laughs> midlist writers. You know, for midlist writers, people who who write books that you know get well reviewed, but um, you know are not necessarily bestsellers. The YA market is kind of a boom market now. So if you know, if you're a professional writer and you can write, and you've been doing it for a while, you know you can. Uh, the, certainly the YA novels that I've written or attempted to write have been for Sharon November at Viking and, and she pretty much told me just you know just write a book just write the way you usually do don't try to write a book for, for young readers just write a, an Elizabeth Hand novel and have the protagonists obviously be young people and uh, you know see what you can do with that so I, I mean, I think Radiant Days, um, if you read it, this, it really, I think, probably could have been published as an adult novel. It, it is not, you know, there's no overt sex in it, so there's, you know, there's nothing in it. It would get a, uh, a PG-13 rating, but it, to me, it, um, it almost, you know, it reads more like an adult novel than it does like a YA novel. I can see how Illyria would be, which was written as an adult novel and published in the UK as an adult novel, and that, to me, in many ways, I, I can see that um, kind of being more of a uh, a novel for teenagers because, really, all of the characters in it are young or teenagers mm -hmm. until the very end of the book, whereas in Radiant Days, the you know one character is 19, so she's a bit older. She's in college. Uh, Arthur Rimbaud is. 16 or 17, but, you know, he's Arthur Rimbaud. He was sort of, he, you know, sprang full-blown from the head of Zeus, and he right. 
does not seem very much like a young person. And another character in the book is an adult. So, um, and the book I'm working on now, Wilding Hall, again, it has a young protagonist, but she's somebody who's 18. She's out of high school. So that they're they're YA novels, but they skew a bit older. You know, I think um, children and young adults, you know, read aspirational. Maybe we all read aspirationally. So these are, you know, our books that are maybe for somebody who's in high school. Yeah. Uh, re- you know, I mean, people who read in high school, high school readers, if you're reading, you're reading adult novels. Sure. You know, you're not reading, you're not reading young adult novels for the most part. You're reading, you know, you're reading whatever adults are reading. I mean, I certainly was. I think most young, you know, young readers today are as well. Well, one of the points that uh, I think we've made on this podcast before is that if you took at least most genre science fiction before 1970 or so, it could easily be marketed as uh, young adult fiction today. Virtually all of Clark and Asimov, uh, it was Heinlein eventually moved into more or less adult fiction, but with, with something like Double Star, it's both a Heinlein juvenile and an adult novel. Um, That's right. So, so I think to some extent it's been an uh, um, artificial... Well, it's a marketing distinction, obviously. Right. It is a marketing distinction. And I mean, you know, when I was in high school, I was reading, you know, Samuel Delaney's stuff. And yeah. Now, that would, be, that would be a hard sell nowadays, to, you know, to sell those books as YA books. But, in fact, a lot of his, you know, his books or stories have young protagonists, teenage or young adolescent, young adult protagonists. And, you know, people like everybody I knew who was 16 or 17 who was reading science fiction back then, so, you know, sort of reading cutting edge stuff, that's what we were reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Wilding Hall, and, and it, it, kept, it kept ringing a bell. And finally, I remembered there's a Bronte novel, I think it was Anne Bronte, wrote a novel called The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Am I right? Yeah, I never thought of that till right now. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> that must have like been buried deep in my subconscious. I came up with the title Wilding Hall some years ago, and uh, I had kind of an idea, a completely different idea for a story. And the story didn't fly at that time. But I thought I like this title. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that in abeyance. So it's sort of a it's actually kind of a riff on Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, uh, only with, you know, younger people and yeah. uh, kind of a theatrical background. But, yeah, it's definitely that kind of Bronte, du Maurier, um, gothic kind of feel. Oh. That ideally, I hope that's what it will have when I finish with it. But, yeah, you're right. I'd forgotten about that, the tenant, the tenant of uh, Wildville Hall. You spent, I guess, in the background somewhere about 10 years writing tie-in books and all this kind of stuff. Do you think that taught you anything at all? Or was it just entirely just uh, something you did to sort of you know, make money when you needed to? Uh, I think it's, you know, it, it, it taught me how to meet a deadline. Yeah. And it, as far as the media tie-in work for the... Um, uh, you know, for movies, any of the novelizations, you know, with that, I, I have to honestly say, I don't know that I really learned much. I mean, I learned that there are some screenplays that are a lot better than others. <laughs> so I did learn that because I, you know, some of the screenplays I read were really good. Some, you know, the screenplay for 12 Monkeys was terrific. And I actually thought the script was better than the final movie was um which and i like the movie but i i thought that the script was really really tight and you know some of the other novelizations i did had uh screenplays that were really beautiful screenplays and the movies may not have been you know usually successful but the the screenplays were very good and and some of the screenplays were terrible and i i knew that reading them and i knew the movies would tank and they did uh, so so that kind of work I don't really know um, 
how much I really learned from it because you know you, you basically they they give you the script and and you've got to convert it into a book and you have a very short period of time. So um, when I did the Boba Fett books, the Star Wars juveniles, they were really fun, and I think that was much you know more of um, uh, a learning experience. Now I learned that I really liked doing it. I had very you know. I was very fortunate. I had David Levithan, who was my editor at Scholastic, and he has since become a very successful writer on his own, writing um, YA novels, Boy Meets Boy, and mm. some of its sequels. Very, you know, really wonderful um, uh, novels with gay protagonists that are not angsty gay novels. They're really kind of, you know, funny and uh, tearful and, you know, uh, romantic. Anyway, he was my editor uh, for those four Boba Fett books, and he was a wonderful editor. But they, you know, he and the Lucasfilm people were, very, you know, they they did not give me um, they gave me a lot of leeway, and so I kind of did what I wanted to do, and it was a lot of fun, and I, and I really did enjoy it. I, that was not something that I thought I would do or that I set out to do, but um, I really it enjoyed doing it. Isn't that what got you on the best solo list the first time? No, I think I was actually Waking the Moon was a bestseller. Believe it or not, yeah, Waking the Moon like crept in at whatever the lowest <laughs> you know rank on a bestseller list, ten or fifteen, whatever it was. I think there was like one week when it was there um, in the paperback edition. So, so Waking the Moon was actually a bestseller for like an eye blink, and then uh, the one or two of the other novelizations I did, I think maybe the Chris Carter novelizations became oh, bestsellers. And then the boat you know, and then the Boba Fett books did and which, you know, they were original books. I, I made all that stuff up. They didn't you know they pretty much would say, Boba's gotta be in this book and he runs into Anakin. Okay. And that would be it. Or they'd say, you know, Boba's in this book and he meets Jabba the Hutt. So that was kind of all the direction they gave me. Okay. So that was fun in that they, those were original novels, whereas with you know the novelizations, they're pretty much, apart from sure. adding a lot of adjectives and descriptions and stuff, that you know, the the hard work on those books is all done by the screenwriters. Sure, sure. I I guess one of the reasons I'm interested in asking the question is because, um, first of all, I, I know several other people who've written uh, media tie-in fiction. And they've said that it helps teach them a certain level of economy and straightforward plotting kind of a thing. And I'm also aware that uh, that Charles Brown was never very, you know, never held the work in very high regard and tended to feel that in some way it damaged you as a writer having done it. The people who had written it, it were never quite the same thereafter. And so I find myself sort of going around asking people who have written it. Uh, how they feel about it, and also looking myself because I've not actually universally found that to be the case at all. I'm not sure I'm, the more I think about it, at all convinced by the argument. Well, Jonathan and, and Gary, you can't see, see me right now, but I'm like deeply damaged on the inside <laughs> <laughs> by those experiences. <laughs> um, no, I, I never, you know, I never felt that way. I, you know, I, I, it was an honest day's work for me, you know, yeah. I had to make money, and I continued to do my other work. But it did, you know, it paid well, but it didn't pay so well that I was going to be seduced by it. <laughs> I didn't make so many millions of dollars writing, you know, Boba Fett or, <laughs> or writing, you know, I didn't make so much money adapting, uh, the X-Files movie that I could, you know, retire to my yacht <laughs> in, in the south of France and, and yeah. never selling my hands with literary fiction again. So, <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's one of those things you would just, I would do it, I mean, the, I did one of those books in five days. I, I didn't realize it was going to be such a short thing, but they sent me the script on Friday and they said, we need this by Wednesday. So I said, Okay, <laughs> and I just you know I cranked it out, but it, you know it was not something I ever you know I felt like it was um, uh, I'm not ashamed of having done it. They had you know one of the books I one of the Chris Carter books that I wrote. He actually went in and kind of basically rewrote it. So that one I you know felt like if I could have taken my name off it, I, I 
might have. But for the rest of it, you know, I, I did it. If there's anything to blame, I'll take the blame for it. But uh, I don't know. I, I didn't. I took it seriously, and that I wanted to do a good job with it. But I had no ego wrapped up in it. So, um, and as far as I know, you know, I don't think anybody ever read the book either. <laughs> except for the, except for the book. Did, did John People, a lot of. I'm sorry. Did John, did John read any of those books? No, I don't, think, I don't think I don't think anyone read them. The Boba Fett books. A lot of people, kids read those books, and I, I yeah. you know, I tried to do a good job with those books because I knew that, that children would be reading them, and and you know, kids love to, you know, when you love a book as a kid, it means something to you, and and so I, I tried to do a good job with that, and I get I get fan letters all the time from you know, I have a big following among eight to ten year old boys, and <laughs> there you go. and I'm. And I'm glad, you know, and I'm glad. I'm happy. I don't think, I don't think many of them are going on to read Winter Long, you know, but <laughs> no. uh, or Generation Loss. I don't think that they're going on to read anything else of mine. But they they like those books, and you know, I feel like I did a good job with them. And so, so no, I, I Charles and Charles never um, Charles never gave me any flack about it uh, doing that kind of work. I know some people have got sucked into doing it, and it is kind of all they do. You know, but but yeah. maybe they you know maybe they really enjoy doing it. I, I reached sure. the point where I just I told my agent that um, for the nonce, I I did not want to do any more media work because my feeling was that I, you know, I only have a certain number of years left of writing, and I really want to be able to to devote them to writing what I really want to write. And you know, there's other people out there who want that work, and yeah. so you know sure. they can have it. I. I I was talking to Brian Evanson last year about he did a alien. Yeah, Brian. He did some. Brian did some stuff. That's right. And yeah. he's a great and, writer. And he's a terrific writer. And he said he just wanted to learn what it was like to think in that framework. I guess to, he, he wanted yeah. to get a sense of what that world of storytelling was like, which is different from the one he works in. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, Jeff Vandermeer has done some too. Yes, so, he did. He wrote a yeah. Predator novel or something. That's right. Yeah. So it's you know, uh, it's honest work for a writer. So Tom Dish, uh, Tom Dish did one. He did back in yeah, he did. Really? I think he did the I think he did the novelization of the, of the prisoner. Yes, I that could be right. wrong. Yeah. No, that sounds right. Check that, you know, check that out. But I'm pretty sure that he did. Yeah. As long as you mentioned we mentioned science fiction, did you do you ever have an impulse to go back to uh, the world of Winterlong and uh, and in your very first novels, and just write a big scale science fiction story again. Well, I do sometimes. Yeah, that that's every now and then I think about it, um, and I w I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I don't know that I would go back to using those same characters. I'm I could oh, no. see maybe going back to that world. I, the character of Margalis Testan and the um, the aviator who's the villain in Winterlong and who he's also in Festival Tide and he's in um, Icarus Descending. I think he's the only character who's in all three books. And he's the one character who I could see using again. And when I had originally planned to write a fourth book, he was going to be the centerpiece of it. So, um, yes, yeah, so I wouldn't rule out doing it, but I don't... Right now, I find myself really... Um, I really love writing the Castaneri books. I find that they're really, you know, um, they're a lot of fun to write, and I, that's probably what I'm going to do for the next couple of years if I can. I mean, if I can, you know, continue to sell them. And uh, and I do like writing the, you know, I like being published as a YA author. I, I don't mm -hmm. know that, um, you know, I don't know how... I don't know what the reception will be for Radiant Days. You know, I just I have no idea. It's not it's not the Hunger Games. It's not <laughs> you know, it's not a lot of the which I'm not dissing that. I'm, no, I'm no, just no. saying it's you know, it's uh, uh, I love a lot of YA novels, you know. I love Nancy Farmer's books and but I think the people who really tap a vein with that kind of writing um, they're able to really, you know, they're able to write books that speak to 
a lot of people, you know, a lot of young people, you know, a lot of adults who read that sort of thing. And I, I think that my work is, at least, you know, my YA work may be a bit more idiosyncratic. I don't know. I mean, I would love to be proven wrong. I, whereas I think the Kathneri books, because I, I feel like the kind of crime suspense field is, um, I think in some ways it's sort of easier to get into, you know. Um, Did you get get response from, from, you have a fantasy following and a science fiction following. How did those people respond to Generation Loss? Because it has a lot of the ambience of a horror novel about it, but it's not a fantastic novel. Yeah, it does, and it, it, it kind of, I mean, and actually what, you know, that book went through several versions before it reached the final one that was published, and one of the, you know, it originally started out as a uh, contemporary fantasy novel, with a very, I can't even remember what the title was, and then it became a straightforward horror, horror novel, and eventually it became, kind of, you know, what it is now, Generation Loss. Um, I think that, you know, the re, the people who are my kind of core readers they they will read whatever i write and you know and i hear from them all the time you know on facebook or you know readercon or various places and or they send me emails and i you know and they pick up the similarities between that and and my other books um i think some people who who like the more straightforward kind of romantic lyricism and this sort of um, very dense descriptive writing in something like Waking the Moon or Mortal Love. Yeah. I think some of those readers who read Generation Lost were kind of bemused by it. Um, but I think most most of the people who had read my work already liked it, you know? And um, and certainly the people who like my darker stuff, like Cleopatra Brimstone or Black Light or something like that, you know, for them it was less of a, uh, you know, it was not such a long leap to get to generation loss. Um, yeah. So um, it might be harder to go back from something like generation loss or available dark to radiant days, which is, you know, much more like Illyria. But then, you know, the, char- the main character, Rogan, in Illyria is inspired by a dear friend of mine who was also the inspiration for Quinn in Available Dark. Um, and this is my friend who died last year suddenly and unexpectedly. And so, the, you know, the characters who inspire my, the real-life people and events that inspire a lot of my work recur, you know. So I yeah. think readers pick up on that as well. But there's also a there's also this kind of theme that goes on about uh, contemporary artists connecting in some semi-mystical way with historical artists. I mean, uh, Rambo is, is an obvious example in, in, in the new novel, but I, I'm thinking in Generation Loss. You and I were talking about that when you were writing. We were trying to track down some women surrealist photographers. That's and right. Claude That's Cale, right. And, and that sort of thing. And I thought, okay... And it turns out that that connection is still there in the novel. It's just not a fantasy connection. That's right. Exactly. Um, yeah, and okay. I did, uh, it's Go ahead. um, it, it's kind, it is kind of a challenge. It was it was a challenge, and I think it is a challenge for me to write. You know, as I've said in other contexts, you know, kind of writing without a net to write mm-hmm. more um, quote unquote realistic mimetic fiction without a fantastic element and what I found myself doing with Generation Loss and what I've done with Available Dark is to try to take that energy and channel it into the descriptions of art. So whereas yeah. in something like Waking the Moon or Mortal Love, you know, I would have the lyrical descriptions of, you know, the fantastical people, you know, the fairies or the fantastical landscape or whatever, where, whereas in Available Dark, um, I take that, uh, you know, maybe lyrical's not the right word, but I take that descriptive energy and I put it into describing the photographs that somebody takes or describing the Icelandic landscape and the wilderness. So um, that 
the kind of energy is transferred where it's, you know, it's not, you know, instead of seeing a ghost uh, and getting yeah. frightened by a ghost, you're being frightened by, you know, by a glacier <laughs> in the middle of the night in, in uh, the Icelandic highlands. So well, but Jonathan, I, Jonathan and I had talked about, uh, even in re reference to some selections in his current year's best of fantastic fiction, which never actually at any point in the narrative crosses the line and this is an impossible kind of thing, but it takes place in a world in which fantasy seems imminent. It seems around you in, in some ways. And I know from your earlier story about uh, what, was it, what do they call them in Iceland, Hildefolk. Oh, the um, Hildefolk. Yes, yeah. yeah what, sto what story am I thinking of? Hungerford's. W Winter's oh. White. Oh, okay. That's it. That's it. And I thought, okay. Yeah. Once you've established that about Iceland, any story you set in Iceland is going to have fantasy just beneath the surface. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. And and but that's true true too, Jonathan. When you were talking, you started to bring up Hungerford Bridge. Because yeah, yeah. I think the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing holds true there because that's a story that's set in contemporary London. And I think right. certain places, certain landscapes, they do. Ha you, you do have the feeling that you know the fantastic could erupt at, mm. at any moment. That it's there just below the surface. And, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time, if you're looking out of the corner of your eye, you might see it. You know, if, if you're there and in, in lost in Iceland, you, you might see it. If you're there in London and, in, in, you know, a proper place in the city at the right moment, you might glimpse it. I'm convinced by now you could do a complete, you could do a book of the month club about underground London novels. Um, <laughs> 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 well, that's why I'm setting the the next the third Cast Neary book is set in London, so I'm looking forward and kind of doing the same thing there that I did with Maine and, okay. and with Iceland. Okay, here's a, here's a, here, I have a question which is completely pointless but interesting to me as to the title of the third Cast Neary novel because you, you, one of the ways of indicating a set of novels and series without saying the continuing adventures of or something like that is to have a kind of formulaic title. And right. Generation loss, available dark. You know, two two word titles, four syllables in the first word, one syllable in the second. Word. Is is that a code for Casanari novels from now on? <laughs> yeah, well, it, yeah, it's probably going to have to be. Although it's getting harder and harder to come up with them. The third one, I think, is going to be called Flashburn. So I keep uh, I keep trying to come up with you know phrases or terms from photography or videography yeah. or something like that um, and it's tough <laughs> I can't tell I can't tell you how many hours I have spent literally pouring over you know dictionaries and glossaries <laughs> of photography or looking through manuals trying to find you know non sequitur words or phrases that I can use it's very difficult <laughs> So I'm probably going to have to break it at some point and just, oh, you know, no. come up with something different. But, <laughs> but I'll keep yeah, trying. This, oh, this, we're looking forward to four-syllable first words. Were you? <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet it's an it's a, it's a important kind of thing. I always felt uh, like Jay Lake wrote a series of books recently, and they used uh, watch parts as the titles of the books. So Main you had, like, Mainspring, Escapement, and Pinion. And I always felt that I mean, the last book apparently didn't do as well as the earlier ones. And to somebody like the title kind of thing begins to impact on how you feel about what you're going to read. Because when we, we, we talk probably a lot about, or as little as we can, I guess, uh, about marketing and sales, but also about connecting with readers. And titles and names become so important, I think. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it's true. I, I just, and I feel terrible if I'm going to, you know, disappoint my legions of readers by ha not having a four-syllable <laughs> first word of the title in the next book. Maybe I'll have a contest. If somebody can come up with one. <laughs> I'll go with it. <laughs> uh, I'm willing to bet Gary's lonely on this one. I, I, I just don't feel, Gary, that many people were counting the syllables in the title until you brought it up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Gary, I wasn't, and now that I, and I just did, and now I feel really bad. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I've blown it. <laughs> okay, I'll give you my second, here's my second theory about generation loss, which you can dismiss out of hand if you want to. And I think I've said this to you before, at least I may have said it 
something I wrote in the Readercom program, that every Castaneri novel takes place further east than the previous one. Yeah, well... Maine, Iceland, London. I mean, you got to go to Prague next. <laughs> yeah, well, I think actually the fourth one is going to be in Sweden. I actually have okay. an idea for the fourth one. I've kind of set something up in the second one that I hope will be kind of a minor element in the third one, but will be a major element in the fourth one. So that that right now that's the trajectory, is that the third one will be in London and the fourth one, will I think, will be in Sweden. So... I think as long as we, as, as, I think as long as she's cold, <laughs> as, as long as she's, as long cold, as she's cold and uncomfortable. <laughs> Let me ask you a completely irrelevant question in some ways, but I'm curious because it's something that I was asked and I had my own answer to. Maiden flight of Beler Macaulay's Bellerophon, science fiction or not science fiction? Um, I thought it was science fiction. Excellent, I did too. Just, it's one of several stories that I've reprinted in my year's bests where people come up to me afterwards and say, that absolutely, 100%, is not a science fiction story. How could you possibly have included it in your book? Well, no, because well, it has aliens in it. That's what I thought, too. They're going, no, that's some kind... I'm going, no, they're aliens. There's like an alien spaceship at the end of it, or towards the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely, it's definitely aliens. It, it also has sort of... It also has a fantastical element in sure. it as well. I mean, I, I sort of, you know, the whole thing with the little figure flying out at the end, the, you know, the little thing that takes off, um, that was sort of a fanciful thing. I, I, you know, it was not a very realistic element. I mean, I guess it could happen. But no, it, it, it was a, um, it felt like a fantasy story, but um, it kind of, you know, I guess it was sort of that Ray Bradbury, you know, sure. how Ray Bradbury yeah. stuff, even when, when he was writing science fiction, it, it didn't really feel very science fiction sure. sure. You know, yeah. it was sort of like soft science fiction. So, but yeah, no, no, you're right, Jonathan. They're, they're definitely, they're aliens. They're, and so, were you at all bemused that it won the World Fantasy Award then? No, I was happy because it, <laughs> it didn't win the Hugo Award. <laughs> 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 and I felt like... Damn! <laughs> well, maybe maybe I could maybe I could fool some of these people into thinking it's. But it, it did feel more like you know yeah, I, it right. felt more like fantasy, and I was kind of deliberately trying to play both sides of the fence there. I, I, I you know, it was sort of written like a fantasy story. It was. It, it had the it had the hmm, affect of a fantasy story, but it was the affect. That's right. Exactly. What's the phrase you use? Crypto aviation or something like that. Um, Crypto so aviation. Much, yeah, and and all that stuff was most of that was absolutely real, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The crypto. I mean, I, I came up with the term crypto aviation, which has now been adopted by the Smithsonian, I which I, my 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 former colleagues there. I'm so pleased. Um, but yeah, a lot of those things were you know were, were actually. I mean, they were real in so far as they exist. I don't know that they were real in so far as the, you know, the aliens or whatever sure. that were right. connected yeah. with them exist. But yeah, there, there were a lot of sort of oddball things at the museum um, that I, I made use of in that story that I referred well, I to. The point was, you know, one of the points we've come up again like, and again on the, on the podcast is what differences make of something as fantasy or science fiction? Because the story was completely grounded in the realities of curation at the, uh, at the Smithsonian, at the, at the Air and Space Museum. So the science fictional element of it, the science historical element of it, was completely authentic. And once you have that yeah. ground, then introducing a fantastical element um, seems to make it look like a science fiction story. And obviously a number of people read it as a fantasy story, and another number of people read it as a mainstream story, which I in my mind, counts as a successful story. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, always, I, I loved that story. That was a lot of fun to write that. It, it uh, you know, I, I was able to kind of, it was inspired by a lot of people, and um, there were several people that I knew back when I worked at the Smithsonian, and um, it was just really, it was lovely to be able to kind of go back and write it and think about them, and, and they were always, and they were also happy to read it. 
they were all very excited when it won the World Fantasy Award. They really were. They, they were very excited. Some of your old friends are still working. They're still at the Smithsonian. Oh Some yeah, yeah. My my friend Greg, um, my dear friend Greg Bryant, who's this wonderful visionary artist. Uh, he's still there, and Tom Crouch, who is a historian of the history of flight, who has written. Um, books and things and, and papers having to do, deal with, uh, you know, uh, crypto aviation, things like that. So, yeah, they, there are, and my friend Chris Globoski, who's in the publications division. So those are probably the three people I know best who are still there. Um, so some of the other people have retired or moved on to other, other places. The big planetarium in the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always thought that was a story that would be a great... I, I, I don't know if anybody would be interested in it, but you, you know this new um, genre of um, fake documentaries. The, the everything that's happened in the in the wake of the Blair Witch Project, and the most recent one, I guess, is Apollo 18, and there are more coming out. But there's there must be archival footage that could make a great fake fake what, what, mockumentary out of out of that story. Yeah, that's a great idea. I never thought about. Yes, that would be good. That would be fun if they could do something like that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, they could just—they could fake their own footage. They wouldn't need to use exactly. real footage. Exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, believe it or not, we're coming to the end of our effort. We're just a little bit over it. <clears throat> and I thought I'd just touch on quickly for those of us who are, well, the point at which we're all likely to see you next, Liz, would be in Toronto at World Fantasy. Where you're yes, that's there. right. I am. I'm so excited. And Gary, you'll be there, right? Yes. I'm raising a glass. Boys. You and John are our guests of honor. It's going to be a northern fantastic, and it, it, it fits in perfectly with uh, with with all your northern themed writing now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Are you going to be there, Jonathan? Are you going I to certainly be plan your, to. Your, yeah, I plan to be. Your yes. warm, your warm, <laughs> sunny place for a cold cold, gray, wintry place in Canada. I am always um, willing to trade off a little bit of summer for a little <laughs> bit of winter because we get an awful lot of summer here. <laughs> yes, well, it should be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. So, yeah, so I hope to see maybe some people out there in the listening world see some of you there as well. Yeah. Yes, uh, everybody plan to come to Toronto in October or whenever it is. Yep. Yes, October, right around Halloween. And for everybody out there, of course, Available Dark will be out next month and Radiant Days in April. That's right. Yes. Remember, Valentine's Day for Available Dark. This would make a very nice for you know, the right sort of person, the ideal Valentine's Day guest. Exactly. <laughs> and actually, I should ask, more short fiction this year at all, Liz, or is it all you know, just novels at the moment? Uh, at the moment, it's just, yeah, it's all novels. I, I cranked out, at the end of last year, I cranked out Near Zenner and a short story called Uncle Lou that was in conjunctions. But, um, uh, and I'm hoping, to, you know, to do some more short stuff this year, but it probably won't be before this summer. So I, I don't think I've got anything forthcoming. Um, no, I think just the books. Okay. Two novels is enough. Two novels is quite a bit, and maybe, maybe you also must have enough new short fiction for a collection by now. Yeah, well, yes, actually, I should say that. Yeah, I do. I actually do have a collection of short fiction coming out at the end of, of the year. Oh. Uh, um, I almost forgot about that. Erin, it's called Erin Tree, that will be out from Small Beer Press. Oh, magic! And that, yeah, that'll be out this fall, and um, that so, will basically collect. Everything from I think Winter's Wife on, okay. so from like maybe ni- 2006, 2007 on, and uh, and also there's a revised edition of Glimmering that will be out in the fall as well. Fantastic, revised, revised. Yeah, so see, I've not. Too, the, the market is going to be so flooded with books by me that I'm going to have to hold, have to hold any short fiction until 2013. <laughs> Well, let me add a parenthetical note about Glimmering, and, and, and you and I have to talk later about this. My thought about Glimmering, which I thought was a terrific novel, was that it kind of got lost in the wash of millennial novels and the year 2000 novels and that sort of thing, and people began to, the, the sense I got, and I don't know how I got the sense, was that people thought, okay, this is Liz Han's millennium novel, 
which in some ways it was, but there was a lot more going on in it than that. Yeah, well, there's, there's actually a lot less going on now because I, I don't know how much I cut from it, but <laughs> I, I cut, you know, I trimmed back some of the purplish description a bit. It, I think it actually, it, it, um, it reads a lot better now. It, it actually, uh, I'll be very interested in seeing what kind of a reception it gets. It's, it, it, I think it holds up well with um, some of the Avoir du trimmed from it. So, yeah, it's... It, um, Graham Slight said that it was could be read now as an alternate history, and uh, and it, it actually works better as an alternate history, I think, than it did as a millennial novel. So yeah, anyway, so that'll be out at the end of of this year. So that that's so something else. Three, three novels and one short story collection in two thousand. And one short story collection, yeah. Yeah, I'm ready for a nap. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that cheery note, thank you very much, Liz Hand, for joining well, us. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Yes, well, thank you both so much, too. Good night. Good morning. Okay. <laughs> so good, good night. Goodbye.